Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Today we're picking back up with the second in our three-part series looking at the rapid rise of plant-based alternatives to animal products. Last time we talked about the staggering sales growth of plant-based products and what's driving consumer interest. And today we're going to take a closer look at two subsections of the market, the non-dairy beverage category and the seafood alternative segment. And we're going to pull out some lessons learned that can help fuel growth in other subsections of the plant-based products category overall. To talk about this, I'm joined by four leaders in the plant-based product space. With me today are Michelle Simon, Executive Director of the newly formed Plant-Based Foods Association, Eugene Wang, founder of Sophie's Kitchen, a vegan seafood alternative manufacturer, Bruce Friedrich, Executive Director of the Good Food Institute, and co-trustee of the New Crop Capital, which is a $25 million VC fund that invests in plant-based and cultured products. And finally, Greg Stettenpole, co-founder and CEO of Califia Farms. Thank you all for joining me. Um, let's start with the plant-based alternative category that is focused on dairy um, beverage. This is a huge segment, and it's been going gangbusters. Um, according to Packaged Facts, U.S. sales of almond milk, for example, is topping $1 billion in 2014. And on a larger scale, the global dairy alternative market is predicted by markets and markets research to be worth $19.5 billion in 2020. Greg, Collegia Farms is a clear leader in the plant-based dairy beverage category. How do these estimates and projections of the category align with what you are seeing in terms of the evolution of this category in the past five years and where it's headed in the future? Well, thanks, Elizabeth. I, I mean, I don't think we have to go any further than just recalling the conversations we've been having over the last, you know, year and a half or so. And, um, you know, it's like dog years. We call them Calafia years. But um, I think the awareness and the depth of the conversation um, that, that we're having today uh, is very different than, you know, just even two years ago when, uh, people were looking at this as, you know, oh, it's interesting, it, it's a curiosity, maybe it's a, possibly a bubble. But I, I think the whole world now has realized that plant-based um, foods and beverages in particular, which can move much faster in terms of their growth and adoption, so that, that's why I think they get a particular attention. Um, so we're we're seeing you know just really a sea change uh, go on and it's all all part of the healthier living phenomenon and underneath that of course the environmental imperatives. So what what we see happening is that um, you know the consumer is now actively looking and indeed shopping where they find the brands and the the retailer assortments that they're looking for. So uh, instead of brands like ours struggling to find a place on the shelf, we're really seeing even the large conventional players asking uh, for some of the solutions that we have. And I can tell you, you know, as an entrepreneur, that's a pretty big shift. And, you know, the projections of the category um, 
we think they keep going, well, number one, as you know, they keep going up uh, compared to even a few years ago. So this $19 billion is um, the first time I've heard that number. The last number I heard was $14 billion. So, uh, you know, just in, in a very short period of time, I think they're reassessing how deep this goes. For us, you know, we're looking at, you know, year-over-year -year growth of close to 100%. Uh, for the last three years. So um, if, if you're companies like us that are very focused on uh, a pure play of a brand and, you know, kind of really trying to maintain focus and identity in the category, um, we're doing very, very well. And I think the retailers and the consumer online uh, really likes uh, that it makes it makes their choices easier, and in a way, we we try to be iconic for standing for you know some of these more pure plant-based concepts. I think it's interesting that you said that retailers are now asking you for more options. I mean, that's definitely an envious position to be in, and one that I know a lot of brands would would love to find themselves in. I'd love that you can talk a little bit about how you turn those tables and how maybe other brands in the space can also turn the tables. Right. Well, I, I think, the, Frank, first of all, um, it's, it's much easier nowadays for smaller brands to get access to the market, uh, both because they can start, there, there's a lot of uh, start locally and there's a lot of support for that. Um, so small juice companies and beverage companies can develop local followings. Uh, they can branch out of retail locations. So, for example, in our coffee sector, we see a lot of roasters start to do RTD beverages and sell them out of their own retail locations at first. Um, then, you know, this market has what, what I like to call long tail. I mean, the, the health and wellness sector has always been ultra-creative and, you know, all you have to do is go to Expo West sometime and and see literally tens of thousands of new ideas, and, and literally every year there's things you you can't you know you've never seen before. So the sector as a whole just keeps driving forward with lots of change and creativity, and that's what we love about it. We try to push that forward ourselves by you know paying attention to the fact that there's lots of other, you know, what have been considered ethnic um, divisions, but we really kind of embrace it as a kind of global interest in new flavors. And we try to drive excitement by rethinking products like horchata, for example, from a clean label perspective. And we also look for ways to lower calories. So it's, it's not just flavors, but I think um, eliminating sugar or minimizing sugar and processed carbohydrates are a driver underneath a lot of the changes that I've seen personally. You know, I started in this business making smoothies and fresh juices back in 1980. And in those days, uh, fruit juice smoothies and fruit drinks um, were considered the healthiest thing you could have. Uh, but they were full of, you know, even though they were natural sugars and, you know, calories. Nowadays, you look at our most popular product is unsweetened almond milk, and 
you know, it's got less than 40 calories, and, you know, it's a completely refreshing beverage. So I, I think that's an area that coincides with a lot of the other things that we're talking about is just, you know, having a general, healthier, simple label profile, and at the same time, paying attention to what other cultures are bringing to the table. Yeah, and you guys have so many new products. I feel like every time I turn around, you're launching something new, coffee creamers or ready to drink single-serve beverages. Can you talk a little bit about how innovation is also helping to drive um, interest in this category? Um, well, the, the, um, a lot of our new products uh, in, the, in the last, um, you know, I think six months have combined some of these concepts I was just talking about it. And, of course, underlying all of that, we're a brand and a company culture that just that continuous improvement is our DNA. So I think that's, um, that's kind of who we are. So, unfortunately, Elizabeth will be <laughs> continuing to – we won't see any end to that. Um, but one of the things that we're really excited about are things like uh, enhancing these milks. And we talked earlier just about it as if it's a commodity category. So, you know, thinking about non-dairy beverages as, um, you know, just something abstract. But we try to bring it down to a level where we combine other trends. So, for example, these enhanced milks, we've launched one uh, with matcha. Um, and almond milk and sweetened it with raw maple sugar in, instead of processed uh, sugar. So the, um, that, together with turmeric and ginger um, and pure coconut or, you know, whole processed coconut that, that uses the whole coconut, these kind of things have a huge amount of popularity, and we're able to have that trusted relationship that we get a lot of trial for these new ideas. Awesome. And Michelle, I'm hoping you can help us, since you're sort of across categories, zoom this conversation outward. Um, are there other lessons that you see from the plant-based non-dairy segment that are applying to other ones or lessons mm -hmm. learned that could help other sectors grow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that the, the beverage category, um, you know, in the larger category of non-dairy is really driving growth in plant-based overall. But that means that there's still a lot of room for growth in, in some of the other um, non-dairy products. So obviously, you know, cheese is a huge um, area. And what's exciting is that there are a lot of companies that are creating all kinds of um, various nut cheeses now, really trying to um, get that taste and texture in whether it's in, you know, mozzarella cheese, provolone cheese, or ricotta cheese. So both uh, the sort of more traditional style cheeses, the soft cheeses, we're seeing just all kinds of particularly local companies coming up and, and really innovating in that arena. And so, you know, there are some lessons to be learned for you know, the need to compete, obviously, with um, the dairy industry. I mean, one of the biggest um, ways that the non-dairy milks were able to succeed was when they kind of came out of hiding from the health food aisle, you know, on the on the shelf, 
and became sold right along with the regular dairy milks in the refrigerated case, right? So in other words, the, the logical connection that a consumer would have, oh, well, if I'm going to buy milk, I'm probably not going to go to, like, the baking aisle, right? I'm going to go to where I buy milk. Oh, well, here's non-dairy milk right next to the cow's milk. So that kind of, um, you know, merchandising and placement in the supermarket we know is really important for driving sales. And so that's, those are some of the lessons that, you know, we're taking a look, we're taking a look at now at the association level to see if, if those kinds of um, strategies make sense because they may not always make sense depending on the category. Um, and because, like, some companies like to be in the fresh produce aisle, for example, and there's advantages to being there. So I think there are some, you know, interesting questions to be asking about what are the best ways to presenting um, these types of products in the supermarket. And I'd like to see some research around it, you know, to say, okay, let's let's have pilot programs where we test kind of the best places to put these types of products in the supermarket. And, again, you know, the tastings, making sure that consumers um, get to see how tasty they are by by trying them. Great. Yeah, demos are always really successful. Mm -hmm. um, let's switch gears here and take a closer look at the meat alternative sector and specifically the vegan seafood market's potential. Eugene, we hear a lot about plant-based proteins, but for the most part it seems like they're in the context of land animals, so bow chicken or pork or cow products or any powders that people put in their shakes. We don't hear a lot about seafood alternatives, though. How would you describe sort of the current landscape for alternatives for land-based meat versus seafood? Sure. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's a very, very wonderful question. You know, with, uh, with my 20 years of um, manufacturing experiences in uh, vegetarian food, and um, I, knew, uh, I know uh, very, uh, uh, very clearly that a lot of the companies over the years have been trying to use soy to kind of simulate the flakiness, mushiness of uh, fish and, 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 and the crunchiness of the shrimp. And then they all failed. Uh, why is that? Why was that? It's, you know, in my opinion, number one is that they are limited uh, to the use of the source of the ingredients. They don't have the access, they don't have the knowledge to other types of uh, plant-based foods like what we have right now. Like what we're using is the elephant yum konjac root uh, in our foods to simulate the shrimp uh, texture. And, and none of the, the businesses uh, in, in U.S. or Canada have uh, any knowledge on that plant, so they don't know how to make it into shrimp. So that's why we don't see it before in the market. And also bear in mind, there are a lot of people think SIPA is a very small business uh, in the overall uh, fish and meat uh, category. That is, um, you know, another uh, misconception right there. You know, from the number I have uh, back in 2012, uh, I can tell you that Americans on the average consume about 143 pounds of uh, poultry, meat, and beef. And on the other hand, uh, at the same year, in the same year, at the same time, they consume about 14.4 pounds of seafood. So that means that for every American on average, you know, probably the, the ones in the south that probably or near the short line probably consume more. Uh, but on average, um, we together as a nation, uh, for each person, we consume about 14.4 pounds of uh, seafood. 
And that's about at least 10% of the, the, the land animals that we eat uh, 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 that's coming from the ocean. And that's a lot of money, you know, and, and a lot of tonnage, too. So, you know, I think that it, there's a great business out there uh, for, for, for any plant-based uh, plant food company who want to capture uh, uh, the opportunity. And so um, the, other, the other area that a lot of the, the, the venture capitalists or businesses uh, fail to focus on is actually um, the, the scope of the market. I think a lot of times when I talk to VCs, when I talk to other uh, businesses, uh, competitors, competitors or suppliers, they are always looking at the market with a very U.S.-centric point of view. And their mindset is purely setting on the U.S. market. And they don't really oversee, they don't really look at the market uh, in any, any other part of the world. So you have to know that uh, in Europe, they probably consume 10, 20% or even more percentage of seafood uh, than, than we do here in the States. And, and another big pocket of, um, of, of the global population who consume a lot of seafood is in Asia, are in, they are in Asia, you know. Like China, the Japanese, the Koreans, they consume way over uh, 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 um, amount of uh, seafood uh, than than we do here in the states. So, if just think about it, if no one is uh, coming up with solutions to tackle these problems uh, down the road, then you know, think about what the the future of the ocean is going to be. What are we gonna leave uh, uh, for our future generations? So that's why I think um, the, the, the plant-based uh, uh, seafood alternative is a very important sector of the market that we have to come up with some solution to address. And that's what we're here trying to do. Awesome. So, um, Bruce, I want to pull you in on this because you can also bring a perspective of, of land animals to the seafood discussion. And you work with a lot of companies. Um, what are some strategies that you've seen either succeed or fail and really, as um, Eugene put it, tackling these problems? Sure. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. And, you know, I think as the numbers that you enumerated at the beginning of this discussion make so clear, both the dairy and the plant-based meat categories are growing wildly. And I shared uh, or share Greg's sense that each time the market research firms recalculate their projections, they go up. And we see that with each individual company. So Greg's company is growing 100% year after year. We see that with Gardein. We see that with Beyond Meat and Hampton Creek. And it's happening with the entire sector. And I think what that indicates is that what's working is competing on basically the same playing field as the rest of the food sector. So plant-based meat, plant-based dairy, they're showing that their products are delicious, that they're helpful, they're innovating, they are creating exciting and attractive packaging, and they're moving toward cost competitiveness. So it seems to us that pretty much everything is working, although it's certainly possible that some things may work better than others. And I share Michelle's interest in the Plant-Based Food Association interest in finding out whether plant-based meat might be even more successful if either it were moved closer to the meat case or if perhaps there was dual stocking 
Um, since we really do need plant-based meat eaters consuming, well, we need meat eaters, excuse me, consuming more plant-based meat, just like that's happening with plant-based milk. So I think most things are working, but I'm excited to test what might be working even better. Consumers are really ready for this, and we're a long way uh, from hitting market saturation. There's really nowhere to go but up. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing which strategies play out and watching these segments grow. I want to thank you all for letting us sort of peek behind the curtain of the non-dairy beverage and the, the meat and seafood alternative categories to see what strategies are working. Next time in the final segment of our three-part podcast looking at plant-based products, we'll consider what other challenges are holding back the overall category and how industry can address them to fuel growth. We'll also touch on what's being done to lower some of the regulatory and funding hurdles for businesses in this space. Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Crawford, signing off through Navigator USA.